Welcome back to Future View and part two of the interview with the brilliant Phil Agnew of The Nudge. In part one, Phil was explaining how behavioural science works in general, as well as a range of fascinating individual examples. We now go deeper in that vein. You're going to hear how Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump use nudge theory, as well as how it can help you get a pay rise. Now, Phil, I wanted to jump onto two T's that you've talked about in your podcast. You can probably guess who they're going to be. You've got Donald Trump and Greta Thunberg as two big, big proponents, whether consciously or not, of behavioural science and being very, very adept at consumer psychology. So if if we started with the Donald, could you give some examples as to how he uses nudge theory and consumer psychology? And and then we'll move on to Greta. I think he's got no clue how he's using what he's using. He's just discovered, you know, almost like uh, Pavlov's dog. He's just been conditioned to learn that something works, and he repeats it time and time again. Um, well, 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 he's he's probably experimented endlessly. As you, yep. as you said he's got a certain yep. sort of you know, chutzpah to him, where he just goes out and tries stuff, and then as that's you say, true as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and, then, and then just probably just sees what works. But anyway, yeah. we digress slightly. But so, so, so what he's so what he what he what he's discovered that works, and I mentioned it earlier, is this idea of mere exposure. This idea that the the more you are seen, the more you're in the news, for good or for worse, if you increase your exposure dramatically and you are in the debate as much as possible, you you actually increase the amount that, that people prefer you. I shared that study with Chinese characters in the Michigan and, and, and the chicks. There's a, there's a different study which is conducted by Bornstein and D'Agostino, um, which is which is all, even more relevant to what, what Trump's doing. And, and in their study, they showed participants a small series of photographs of faces so you would go into the study and you'd see 20 or 30 photographs of faces, a bit too many to really memorize them because um, you're only looking at them for a brief period of time, but enough for your for your brain just to register these faces. Then later on, I think after lunch, you, they were presented, the same people were presented with a much 10 times the amount of faces, 300 faces in front of them. And the participants were chose not just to look, told not just to look at these faces, but were actually told to go and pick a face that they preferred, one that they thought, you know, perhaps they were attracted to or they just liked the look of could have been a male or female it was just you know which which face do you prefer and what they found was people were far 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 more likely i don't have the exact percentage but the vast majority of people would pick faces that they'd seen before so it should have if if this effect wasn't true it, that should have only happened one in 10 times but what they actually found was the vast majority over 50 percent of people were picking faces that they'd seen before and this is a very crude, literal application of what Trump tries to do. He tries to be, his face tries to be visible anywhere. And I think what's most interesting about this is, you know, for people like me, I don't, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't particularly like Trump for, for many reasons. And yet I'm the type of person who would share something in, in, in absolute disgust and say, I can't believe he's done this or talk, talk to him about it with my partner and my family. And I say, I can't believe they're doing this and, 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 and wanting to raise attention to it. And actually a lot of the psychology would suggest that in doing that, you're, you're making things worse. You're only adding to the mere exposure effect. Then now there is evidence that suggests, you know, if you're purely sharing, sharing negative stuff, it, it, you know, that will decrease the likability of the person. And I think what Trump's doing is he's, some things which are perceived to be very negative for some people are perceived to be very positive for others. So that only boosts his, his impact of the mere exposure effect. Um, but yeah, it's a really good point. You know, this is an issue. If, if we give these, these people limelight, they, they will benefit from it. And then, yeah, you asked about Greta. I think there's a couple of interesting things with her. I, I, one is um, I predict that she will get a lot less influential as she gets older. 
So why, um, um, why, is, why is that? Yeah, there's there's something in psychology called called essentially the contrast effect, which is the idea that we 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 remember things and we we are influenced more by things that have contrast. So, um, Miss Mr Beast, do you, do you know Mr Beast, Henry? This is a YouTuber, very very popular YouTuber with with you know very young people, but he he has more subscribers than the population of Brazil. I, I, I don't. I have to say I'm really dating myself because I got kind of that old TV show Gladiators kind of came into my head yeah, yeah. when you said that. Well, he's, I mean, just to give you context, he, he he's so big that he's, he, I think he's one, one of, if not the biggest YouTuber. He has used that to create $100 million companies. Um, uh, he, he's likely to be, you know, a billionaire within a couple of years very very influential person like i said he's i think he's had so many views that the whole of the uk including pensioners and kids would have to watch eight hours of his show to equal the actual number of uh, of hours have been watched of his show he's massive and yet despite all this money all this influence he records at a really low quality so 1080p when he could be recording at 4k regularly leaves you know mistakes in his in his recording and just looks dresses like a really average person and he actually does this on purpose and he does this on purpose because he benefits from the contrast effect because he's so incredibly successful and yet he looks like an average american he benefits in a way where people you know that that's memorable you don't expect somebody he famously gives away millions of pounds in his videos you don't expect someone who gives away millions of pounds like chris tarrant on who wants to be a millionaire to be a 20 year old american kid dressed in a tracky tracky bottoms and a t-shirt and so greta benefits in the same way you don't expect the biggest environmental influencer in the world the one who is telling all of our politicians to change their ways to be uh, a schoolgirl who you know is literally a teenager you don't expect them to potentially be autistic which which uh, greta is as well and so she benefits from this contrast effect which is interesting um another thing she benefits from is is her language she's really because she's so young she's able to adopt an approach in her messaging which is very powerful because she's under the age of 18 she can't take responsibility for the environmental crisis whereas you know in a way you and i can because we have mm. been around for long enough to to have have been contributing to this and to have been making decisions you know i didn't switch to a green energy supplier until i think three years ago you know i'm not there was a time when i wasn't doing enough so i'm partly at fault but greta can get she's literally not when she was writing these speeches she she didn't have the she couldn't make these decisions and what type of lines has she has she used sort of bill i i I don't know her speeches well enough to be able to kind of call you know recall specific lines or moments so there's one speech, and she does this in all of them, but I, I remember um, I, I previewed it on the show, and she essentially says the word you or your five times within, I think, 50 words towards the end of the speech. And she's telling people in the room, you are responsible. And as I said, she can get away with this because of her age. But studies show that doing this, saying you and your in your copy, dramatically increases feelings of engagement and feelings of involvement as well. Um, There's a study which analysed 4,124 Facebook posts from 10 major brands. So it's looking genuinely a marketing-based study, but it applies here. And it looked at the likes and comments and shares on each of those posts. And the researchers found that when the posts contained um, these second-person pronouns, so saying you and your, it made the posts more popular. So, and it 
two additional experiments which since have come out since this was was run um, back up this finding so a facebook post that said maximize your savings versus maximize savings made people feel 20 percent more involved with the brand and then a blog post titled keep your data safe versus keep data safe improved brand attitudes by by nine percent so i've just bored your listeners with a bunch of data there but long story short is using you and your and your engages people and Greta, because of her this contrast effect, because of she because she's so young, is able to use that far more than any scientist or activist or politician who's of the age of a typical politician. So this is one of the reasons why she's been so impactful. And I think also one of the reasons that as she ages and as she's been on the scene for a lot longer, it'll get harder and harder to benefit from these biases, and and, and that might that might decrease her influence. Yeah, I, I suppose there's also a component to it where it's a little bit, not necessarily shocking, it's a little bit surprising, isn't it? Having, you know, however old she was when she came to, you know, came to prominence, having a relatively young school schoolgirl directly addressing adults and people in policy making decisions in such clear language and slightly accusatory language or clearly accusatory language. Mm. I think that that's probably a component of it as well, I imagine, is it, that, that that amplifies the effect that you were just describing? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's, if you incur risk as well, you, your message is boosted. I mean, she didn't incur much. I mean, she she skipped school. So mm. she was she was often like, if you remember when she first came out, a lot of people just called her a truant and you didn't want to go to school. And she she incurred a lot of risk on her image with that. And incurring risk is a very good way to, to gain attention. This is why hunger strikes work. So people won't listen to you if you just debate and, and plead. But if you refuse to eat, that forces people to pay attention. I recently read uh, Dave Trott's book, I think it was in Predatory Thinking, and he shared, I didn't know this, the story of the Americans Disability Act which was being thrown around the Congress and wasn't signed for ages. And it meant there was there was really very little in the American law books in the 80s, which meant that people of disability had, had equal access to hotels and restaurants and shops. It wasn't getting signed and nothing was being done. And so 60 disabled people went to the Capitol building in Washington, which famously has these 79, I believe, steps, white marble steps, hard white marble steps, which lead up to the building. And that was the only way to get into the building. There was no disabled access. And so as a protest, they threw away their crutches and, and their wheelchairs and they and they crawled up these steps. And the image of that, sort of the risk that incurs, the, 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 the pain that occurs, the image that makes in your mind, made people remember it and, and it actually ultimately got them to sign the the American Disability Act. It wasn't, it was after that 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 the that it was signed and i think there's something that links all of these activists which is when you incur a bit of uh, a bit of cost a bit of risk it makes it your message more salient and it's probably something that um folks like the you know i think some 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 of the folks that are protesting at the moment do benefit from that so i think the grand national protests recently you know there was mm, in some yeah. way a bit of a risk to their lives so you could argue there was also a bit of risk to to maybe not enough risk as well and then the, i think there was a protest at the snooker re recently where there mm. wasn't enough risk and that didn't come across well and i think if you look at it from this this sort of view of skin in the game and risk you start to understand why some of these campaigns and and, and protests are, are more compelling than others yeah you're, you're really raising the stakes fundamentally aren't you mm. Well, I also wanted to raise a subject and a question which probably will strike fear and trepidation into the hearts of all the employers listening which is that you have talked articulately as well around how to use uh, nudge theory and behavioural science and consumer psychology to get a pay rise. 
Yeah, I um I had Dan Pink on my show. Who's Dan is a, a incredible. Um, I mean, biz, business thought thought leader has written fantastic books. Drive being one of them. Um, and I just asked him, "How can I get a pay rise?" And he walked me through these amazing studies, which highlighted it. And he shared one study, which is really a negotiation study. And this is a a study which is taught to negotiators. And in the study, the the participants were actually asked. I think to sell a petrol station, a gas station. I've no idea why that was the thing that they were negotiating over. I guess because they wanted to link it to house sales, where there is typically a negotiation, but without actually, you know, being influenced by houses. And they and they set up their study in, in three ways. They got three groups, as always, so A, B, C test. And with the first group, they told them just try and sell the petrol station to the to the um, to the buyer. In the second group, they told them to try and sell, but to focus on the buyer's emotions. So you're trying to sell the petrol station, talk about how how good it is, but really think about the buyer's emotions. And then in the final scenario, they asked um, these people to sell, but told them to focus on the buyer's interests. So really put yourself in their shoes and think, what are their interests? What do they want? And they found from doing this study that the group that focused on the buyer's interests got much better deal, got a much better selling value than the other two groups. So framing your message and thinking thinking about your message, but framing it through the view that you're thinking about what the other person can benefit from is a fantastic way to, to, to get a better deal. And Dan Pink told me this, and he said, this applies directly to getting a pay rise. When you when people go and ask for a pay rise, they usually think about it through their point of view. They think, I deserve a pay rise because I've done this, because I've done that, um, because I'm trying to get here, because I've had this much tenure. And it's, you know, classic group one out of those three groups. But if you if you go with the approach of group three, you try and and think about the interests of your boss, you'll you'll be much more effective. So if you go into that conversation and instead of saying, can I get a rise and say instead, here's how my my raise, my pay raise will be in your best interest. Here's how my pay raise Mm -hmm. will be good for you. Here's the benefits it will give you, boss, rather than all the stuff it will give me you should be as effective as those folks in the study. So thinking about a pay rise through the lens of your boss's interests rather than your own should be a good way to get a pay rise. I think that's very sage advice. Uh, makes a lot of sense. It's also really interesting. I mean, I'm still slightly puzzling over what the emotional benefits of owning a petrol station might <laughs> might be, um, but I'm sure there are some that they came up with in that experiment. Yeah, me too. No idea. <laughs> One to read up on, I think. Yeah, it's also interesting in terms of the the balance between rationalized benefit and emotive benefit as well, because obviously that that's a big debate in marketing. And I know I'm going off going off on a slight tangent here, but around the extent to which decision making is system one as opposed to system two, mm. um, and I wonder if it if actually you need to place relatively more emphasis on system two on the practical benefits while recognizing that system one is also playing a role within the decision making mm, yeah, so i have not thought about that in regards to a pay rise i think it's a good point obviously i think the the literature would say both effects end up playing into the decision but because the decision is made over it's not made in the snap judgment system two will also be involved so yeah it's 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 finding a way to position your pay rise i think if we think about system one it probably means that when you ask for your pay rise the first way you should frame it, the initial way you should frame it is is in your boss's best interests because that's when that when you first ask it will trigger their system one and they'll have an initial thought and decision will initially pop up in their head and that probably be the one they stick to and it'll be really hard to get them out of that. So yeah, the initial way you ask is probably really important as well. 
Yeah, that that is interesting because I suppose there are some decisions as well. If you take a pay rise as an example, whereby very few bosses are going to be able to enact that instantaneously. So there is going to be a rational process afterwards. So may, maybe it's post-justification after system one has kicked in, mm. um, or maybe it's just a greater a greater balance towards system two for those types of decisions. I mean, all the literature suggests the two things interface anyway, and they're constantly interrelating. But I will stop my waffling and pontificating or speculating around these areas. And um, Now, I know you've had lots of mentors because you've been fortunate enough to speak to a lot of very intelligent people um, and very knowledgeable in this area. But who would you really call out, sort of mentors or people who've inspired you the most and why? Yeah, I've just, I've earlier this week, maybe it was last week, I did a, a an interview with Richard Shotton for his new book. And yeah, I mentioned him earlier in terms of inspiring me to get into behavioral science in the first place. His original book, The Choice Factory, was brilliant. His follow-up, Illusion uh, of Choice, is fantastic as well. So um, yeah, I'd probably mention mention him. I don't think he would class himself as a, as a mentor, but I think for his books, he's been he's been brilliant in, in helping me understand behavioral science. And, and that relates directly to the next question, which is any favorite books. I mean, they could be fiction, they could be consumer psychology books. Um, what what, what mm. would you recommend um, that people might read just for just to switch off, or if they want to learn more about this subject area? Yeah, let's do two on the subject area. So I mentioned The Choice Factory by Richard Chotton, and then I think Influence by Robert Cialdini. He's he's one of the godfathers behind behavioral science and its application to marketing. So those two are brilliant. Um, and then uh, let's do another book. I've just recently read actually War Doctor, which is by David Knotts. This brilliant book about a, um, a British doctor who went to work in Syria, volunteer in Syria as a doctor out there. And I think just if you ever want perspective on on your life and the troubles you feel in your life and also fulfillment and 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 if you feel fulfillment in life and if you did something else if you would feel fulfillment i think that's a really good book in helping you see the world through another person's point of view i mean long story short he's probably he's acting like a literal superman in the work he's doing saving people's lives every day and yet he struggles for fulfillment and i think that's in a way very useful for all of us to hear because i think we're all seeking fulfillment constantly and it, and it sometimes never comes um, yeah, sounds like a great recommendation. I shall add it to. I shall definitely add it to the list. Now, what have you changed your mind about recently? Mm. Um, a lot of people in podcasting say that consistency is king. All you have to do, you'll know this, Henry, is you know if you just create twenty podcasts, you will be you know that's great. And then once you've got consistency going, going, you'll start to grow. And I don't think that advice is necessarily bad. I think you can learn as an individual a lot from consistency. If you create 20 podcasts, you will be a better podcaster by the end. But I also think it's often the wrong approach. And I think that approach doesn't encourage perfection, not even perfection, just aiming for greatness. And I think there's a lot that can be, I've noticed that I can improve much more, not by thinking about podcasting from a consistency point of view but thinking about it from a greatness point of view so with my podcast I, I don't aim for consistency anymore i'm happy to not be consistent i'm happy to chuck away episodes that aren't good enough but instead set the bar high enough to reach a level that i'm happy with and and so what type of things are you trying then um in terms of breaking the mold and moving away from a more consistent approach so yeah with my podcast i mean i'm, I'm 
if you listen to it, it's a narrative-based discussion where I record the guest first and then write a script afterwards and usually spend way too long writing that script. I go away and run my own experiments to add or to take away from something that a guest has said. I do these deep dive pieces. So I've just finished one on Churchill looking at how he used behavioral biases to influence and gain power and gain gain uh, influence tr- tr- throughout his career. So just trying to create content, which is yeah, a little different from what people usually, usually expect and goes away from that mantra of consistency. I think if I was aiming for consistency, I wouldn't have tried any of those things. So yeah, those are some examples. Gotcha. Now, slightly more personal question, a slightly cheeky one, if you don't mind. What would your partner say your best and worst characteristics are? yeah um god we should get her on actually yeah we should ask her herself because it'd be definitely different from what i say <laughs> that, that is what most guests do seem to do by the way is that they, they ask really, their they partner ask. and then slightly grimace as they report this back um i know yeah one of the things my partner says to me is she's she's envious of how much i read so i guess that's probably a good that's, that's a rubbish one isn't it what a what a rubbish characteristic oh you read a lot my partner says I'm funny, so I'll take that. I'll probably go with that one. Um, yeah. One of my worst characteristics at the moment is whenever I'm cooking, and I love cooking, I really enjoy cooking, but for some reason, whenever I'm cooking and my partner's in the kitchen with me, I just get so stressed out. I need to be the only one in there. I need to be the only one anywhere near anything that's cooking. And if I'm if I'm not left alone, I get really stressed out and not fun to be with. So yeah, that's probably one of my worst characteristics and i think you could probably extrapolate that to other areas and 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 see see how big that negative characteristic is but yeah that's one of the worst ones so Phil, how, how do you manage to fit all this stuff in i'm kind of wondering because you know you're running marathons you've got a very successful yeah. podcast you've actually got a, a full-time job as well yeah um how do you make it all work well, this is a few ways. I work at a company called Buffer, brilliant company. Uh, if anyone's looking to do social media scheduling, go and check out buffer.com. If you do, you'll see lots of behavioral science interventions on the webpage, um, which we are working on. Um, they do a four-day work week in the UK, which and, and they actively encourage people at the company to be sort of creators in their own right, like myself. So they're very, very supportive, which is helpful. And having um, that extra day to work on that really helps. Um, I think I've got, you know, that benefit of being at a stage in my life where I don't have kids. I think that makes a, a really big difference and I'm, I'm aware enough to to know that. Um, and then, yeah, I, I guess otherwise just it's, you're doing something that interests you. I know it's cliche advice, but mm. doing something that, that interests you tend to, tends to motivate you. Yeah, very much so, doesn't it? Yeah, it actually doesn't feel like work or, mm. um, yeah, you, you just want to engage further with it. Final question. If if you could be CEO of any company, what would it be and why? Yeah, so I, this is the debate I have most with my friends at the pub. And I talk to them about what I would do if I was CEO of FIFA or, or the Premier League. Or I'm a big I'm a big football fan. So I think okay, about this who, a lot. Who, who, who do you support? Well, I live I live around the corner from Chelsea. From, so I support Chelsea. But I mean, that used to be a badge of honour. And now it's just utter dismay. We are, we are awful. Um, <laughs> so... Um, and maybe this fuels my radical decision making. But what I would love, basically, there is a lot of evidence in psychology that we get the most pleasure from variable rewards. So when a reward is consistent, when something is samey, we don't really like it. And there's these amazing studies with um, rats where if, if they press a lever and it automatically gives them sugary water every time, they'll actually get bored of pressing it. But if the lever only gives them sugary water every 
at random intervals, they get addicted to it and can't stop pressing it. Mm. And we are just like those rats. We're addicted to apps like TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, which give us variable rewards as we scroll. We never know what we're going to see next. And there's an issue with football at the moment, especially club-based football. And this issue seems to be only getting worse, where it's getting far and far, it's getting less and less predictable. It's getting more and more predictable, Mm. sorry. So the winners of the Premier League have been, I think there were six teams who have won the Premier League over the 30 years. And if you compare that to other competitions, like, for example, the Super Bowl in the US, the variance is far, far less in the Premier League. So I would love for football clubs to introduce a model which encourages variability a little bit, like the draft in the in the States, mm. where the worst teams get to pick some of the best young players the following season. And that adds that variability, which you can see in the Super Bowl results. You get much more variability in, in who ends up winning that competition. So I would even go one further. I would say, you know, the top team in the Premier League this year has to give five of their players, maybe not their best players, but five of their sort of top class mm. players to the bottom team and really mix it up. And I think it would make for a much more interesting competition. I think you'd get much more variance and think people would be a lot happier. Um, I I agree. I think while it's a a great product in many ways, it's actually got quite boring in all sorts of other ways. That said, Leicester a few years ago. And isn't that everyone's favourite season? Isn't that everyone's season where they say, oh, that was amazing. Like that was such a story. And I and I know this wouldn't happen if it happened every year, but that should happen more regularly. That, mm. You know, that should be a more regular occurrence. It's great that that has happened. It's great that Arsenal are competing this year in a way that surprised many people. That's making it more interesting. But yeah, I think similarities, boy. It's, I'm sorry to Man City fans, but it's boring watching you at the top. We want we want variants. So um, yeah, more <laughs> Leicester cities. Uh, Phil, thanks so much. Um, it's a good point to which to sign off, I think, in terms of talking about variance effect and uh, again, uh, how, how this plays out within within the Premier League. It's been an, an absolute pleasure and I've learned a huge amount. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It really was a pleasure chatting to Phil and do check out the Nudge podcast for more information. We have some great guests coming up in future weeks, including Jessica Davliga, the CEO of Space, and David Ball of Audience Strategies, who gives a masterclass on how to integrate chat GPT into your insight processes. It's a must listen, I tell you. Thanks once again to insightplatforms.com and thank you for listening.